Section three of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Bidolph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Bidolph by Francis Sheridan. Volume one continued. July the fourth. You are unkind, Cecilia, and do not do justice to my sincerity when you say you are sure I am in love with Mr. Falkland. If I were, can you conceive it possible that I would deny it to you? Ah, my sister, must I suspect you of wanting candour by your making a charge of disingenuity against your friend? Indeed, Cecilia, if I am in love with him, I do not yet know it myself. I will repeat it to you. I think him the most amiable of men, and should certainly give him the preference, if I were left a free choice, over all the rest of his sex, at least all that I have ever seen, though possibly there may be handsomer, wiser, better men, but they have not fallen within my observation. I am not, however, so prepossessed in his favour as to suppose him a phoenix, and if any unforeseen event were to prevent my being his, I am sure I should bear it, and behave very handsomely. And yet perhaps this may be only bragging like a coward, because I think a very short time will put it out of the power of fortune to divide us. Yet, certain as the event of our marriage appears to me at the present, I shall endeavour to keep a sort of guard over my wishes, and will not give my heart leave to centre all its happiness in him, and therefore I cannot rank myself among the first-rate lovers, who have neither eyes nor ears nor sensations, but for one object. This, Mr. Falkland says, is his case in regard to me, but I think we women should not love at such a rate till duty makes the passion a virtue, and till that becomes my case, I am so much a philosopher in love that I am determined not to let it absorb any of the other cordial affections which I owe to my relations and my friends. I think we ought always to form some laws to ourselves for the regulation of our conduct. Without this, what an impertinent dream must be the life of almost every young person of our sex. You, my dear, though with an uncommon understanding of your own, have always been entirely conducted by your wise parents, and in this I make it my boast to have followed your example. I have been accustomed from my infancy to pay an implicit obedience to the best of mothers. The conforming to this never yet cost me an uneasy minute, and I am sure never will. July the 5th A little incident happened today which pleased my mother wonderfully. She had been at morning prayers, as you know is her daily custom, when returning home in her chair, one of the men happened to slip his foot and fell down just before Mr. Falkland's house. He was so much hurt that he could go no further, and the footman immediately opening the chair told her she had better step into Mr. Falkland's till he called another, or got a man to assist in carrying her home. 
One of Mr. Falkland's servants happened to be standing at the door, so that without any previous notice she was immediately conducted into a parlour, where Mr. Falkland was sitting at breakfast. She found with him two pretty little children at his knee, to one of whom he had given some cake, and the elder of the two, a boy of about five years old, he was gravely lecturing, though with great gentleness, for having told a lie. My mother asked him with some surprise whose children these were. He smiled and told her they were his coachman's, and then ordered the footman to carry them down, bidding the little boy to be sure to remember what he had said to him. My mother inquired if he permitted them to be in the house. He said he did, and that he had been induced to it from the distress he had seen their poor father in a few days before. He is an honest, careful fellow, continued Mr. Falkland, and has lived in my family from a boy. He was married to a good sort of a body who took great care of these children and helped to maintain them decently by her work. The poor woman died in childbed last week, and the person who attended her in her illness, for she had no servant, took that opportunity of robbing the lodging, and after plundering the poor creature of everything that was worth carrying away, locked up these two children which you saw with me and the newborn infant with the corpse of their mother the poor little wretches continued in that dismal situation all night having cried themselves to sleep without being heard though there were some other people in the house the morning following i happened to make an early visit in the neighbourhood of this distressed little family and my coachman who was a very affectionate husband and father took that opportunity of calling on his wife whom he had not been able to see for three days the cries of his children now awake and almost starved obliged him hastily to break open the door of the room where the poor fellow was shocked with the dismal spectacle of his wife's motionless corpse in bed, the infant almost expiring at her side, and the other two poor little famished creatures calling to their dead mother for bread. The sight almost deprived the man of his senses. He snatched up his two eldest children in his arms and ran, raving, to the house where I was tearing his hair like a madman he told me his mournful story with which i was so affected that i ordered one of my footmen to carry the two children home to my house directly and desired their father to look out for somebody to take care of the young one which he soon did the poor honest fellow was delighted when he came home to find his two children well and merry for they were sensible of no want but their food. But his grief returned on him with great violence at the thought of his being obliged to put them into the hands of people who, he said, he was sure would not be so kind to them as their own poor mother had been. And my man told me he did nothing but kiss them and cry over them the whole day. To make his mind easy at once, I let him know they should remain here, under his own eye, 
till they were old enough to be put to school, and accordingly directed my housekeeper to see that they were taken care of, which has made their father very happy. The little rogues have found their way up to me, and I love sometimes to hear them prattle, but this morning the eldest, having told me a lie of his brother, I was checking him for it when you came in. My mother was so pleased with Mr. Falkland's conduct in this little history that she repeated it to me word for word as soon as she came home, and concluded with observing how good a creature Mr. Falkland must be, who in so tender a manner interested him in his poor servant's misfortune. Most young men, said she, would have thought they had done enough in giving the servant money to have provided for his children as well as he could. It is in such trifles as these that we often discover the excellence of the heart. You will suppose, my dear, that I am not displeased at any circumstance that can raise Mr. Falkland's character in my pious mother's esteem. I heard the story with great pleasure, but not making any comments on it, Sir George, who was present at the relation, said, "'Well, Sidney, you're either very affected or the greatest stoic in the world. Why, any other girl would be in raptures at such a proof of the honest tenderness of that heart, which she knows she possesses entirely, and on which the whole of her future happiness depends.' "'I am very sensible of Mr. Falkland's worth, brother.' I replied, and I can feel without being transported. I will be hanged, said Sir George, if I think you love Falkland at least not half so well as he deserves, and I dare swear you have not been honest enough to tell him yet whether you do or not. It is time enough for that, I replied, if Mr. Falkland and I should be married. I hope I shall give him no cause to complain of my want of affection. "'If you should be married,' said my brother, "'I know of no possible ifs, unless they are of your own making.' "'I know of none either,' answered my mother. "'Yet I think Sidney is in the right to be doubtful about all human events. "'Many things,' added she gravely, for she has a great veneration for old sayings, fall out between the cup and the lip. I think, mother, said Sir George bluntly, you were disappointed in your first love. I've heard you speak of it, but I forget the circumstances. As I'd never heard my mother make any mention of this particular, I begged she would oblige me with relating it. "'When I was about one-and-twenty, daughter,' said she, "'a match was concluded by my father "'between me and a very fine gentleman. "'I loved him, and, as I suppose all young women do "'in the like circumstances, "'believed myself equally beloved by him. "'The courtship had been of a year's standing, "'for you must know I was not very easily won.' Everything was settled, and the day appointed for our marriage arrived. When, instead of the bridegroom, whom we every minute expected, there came a letter from him, directed to me. The contents were that, having formerly been engaged to a young lady by the most solemn vows, 
he had, unfortunately for them both, forgot them all on seeing me, and had broke through every obligation divine and human to obtain me. He entreated mine and my family's pardon in the most pathetic manner for having engaged our esteem so far as to consent to a union of which he found himself unworthy and which it was impossible for him to accomplish. For, said he, the wrongs I have done the woman whose youth I seduced rise to my imagination with so much horror that for the empire of the world I would not complete my guilt by devoting that hand to another to which she only has a right. He enlarged greatly on the sufferings of his heart in the struggle between his love for me and his duty to the person who had his first vows, and whom, he declared, his infidelity had almost brought to the grave. He claimed my pity both on his own and her account, and repeatedly entreated my forgiveness of his fault. The whole letter, which was very long, was so expressive of a mind overwhelmed with despair, that I was exceedingly shocked at the reading of it. What could I say? The plea he offered for his seemingly strange conduct was too just to admit of any objections. I own the disappointment afflicted me, but I bore it with a becoming resolution. My family were at first exceedingly exasperated against my doubly unfaithful lover, but upon inquiring into the facts they found the truth to be as he had represented it. The conclusion was that, upon the very day on which he was to have been married to me, and on which he had writ that gloomy letter, he was seized with a melancholy, which, increasing on him daily, soon after ended in absolute madness, and he was confined for the remainder of his life. The young lady lived but a short time after the melancholy fate of her lover, and died, as it was said, of a broken heart. It was a great comfort to me to reflect that my fate disposed otherwise of me than to this unhappy gentleman, for I am very sure, had these fatal events happened in consequence of my marriage with him, that I should never have survived it. This extraordinary anecdote of my mother's life, which I had never had a hint of before, for she could not speak of it without great emotion, very much affected me. Sir George said the story was more tragical than he had apprehended, and told my mother that was an accident which fell out between the cup and the lip with a vengeance. My mother continued thoughtful for a good while, and I was sorry that the memory of this melancholy story had been revived. But Sir George talked and laughed us both into spirits again. July the 6th This Mr. Falkland is a princely man. He has sent me such a set of jewels. My mother says they are too fine for a private gentlewoman, but George tells her they are not a bit too fine for Mr. Falkland's wife, and only suitable to his fortune. You know I have but few of my own, these only which were my mother's when she was a maiden. 
the greatest part of hers, and by much the finest, were presented to her by my father. But those she reserves for Sir George against the time of his marriage, as a present for his lady, for they are family jewels. July the 8th. My probation is over, my Cecilia. The formidable question has been put to me, and I have answered it. I marry, say you, but how? In the negative, to be sure, my dear. No, no, my Cecilia, a valuable, pure, what an affected cold word that is, a lovely and most worthy man with six thousand pounds a year is a prize that a country girl must not expect to draw every day. Mr. Falkland, in lover-like phrase, demanded from me the time of his destined happiness. I referred him to my mother. She, good and delicate as she is, referred him to Sir George. George blurted out some sudden day that startled us both. When Mr. Falkland reported it to us, I stammered out something. My mother hesitated. Sir George came in and blundered at us all. So I think we compounded for the time, and amongst us, fixed upon this day month. And full soon enough, says my Cecilia, you have known the man but about six weeks, and surely a month is as little time as you can take in preparing fineries. True, my girl, true, but it is all George's doings. Indeed, my Cecilia, without affectation, I had much rather have had a longer day, though I think I know the man as well in those six weeks as if I had been acquainted with him so many years. For he has spent most of his hours with us every day during that time, and my mother says he is one of those in whom there is no guile. Sir George is downright insolent. He declares I am not sensible of my own happiness, and that I deserve to be married to some little petty Wiltshire squire. He so piques himself upon making this match, there is no bearing him. He has taken all matters of settlement upon himself, and insists on my mother's not interposing. She acquiesces, but charges my brother not to let Mr. Falkland's generosity carry him too far, and bids him remember what is due to his friend as well as to his sister. July the 10th. I really begin to be hurried. My mother, you know, is exactly punctilious in everything. Such a quantity of things are bought, and such a quantity to be bought, that there is no end of journeys into the city. Then milliners and mantilla-makers. One would think I was going to pass the remainder of my life in a remote country, where there was no kind of manufactures or artifices to be come at, and that I was providing clothing for half a century. July the 12th. I have much upon my hands, and Sir George is so impatient and troublesome that I believe I must employ a secretary to give you a minute detail of all our foppery, for I shall not have patience to do it myself. End of section 3